I'm Elise Hugh. And I'm Josh Klein. And we're the hosts of Built for Change, a podcast from Accenture. On Built for Change, we're talking to business leaders from every corner of the world that are harnessing change to reinvent the future of their business. We're discussing ideas like the importance of ethical AI or how productivity soars when companies truly listen to what their employees value. These are insights that leaders need to know to stay ahead. So subscribe to Built for Change wherever you get your podcasts. This is a crowd podcast. For 28 years, 30 years, 31 years, everybody has been suffering and nobody's been there to pick up the pieces. Nobody. This final episode is about the terrible impact of it all. Many of the human shields never recovered. They suffered long-term health problems. There have been suicides and attempted suicides. Two medical studies have been written about the trauma of the victims. More than half of the hostages lost their jobs or homes or suffered other financial damage or long-term depression. This is the secret history of Flight 149 with me, Stephen Davis. In this episode, you'll hear what happened to Barry Manners, Clive Earthy, Jennifer Chappell, Gregor Schatz, and the other human shields we've been following. I'll also share with you some crucial information about the secret mission that landed BA-149 in a war zone. Information that's come to light since we started making this podcast. And new details that sources have only just felt able to reveal. At the heart of this story, there have always been questions over who knew what, when. When did the invasion start? When did people know it had started? Did Flight 149 land before or after it had begun? Let's recap on some of the key details. Flight 149 left London on the 1st of August 1990, after a two-hour delay. It was 9.04pm in Kuwait. It landed at 4.13 a.m. local time on the 2nd of August. We now know that Tony Pace had informed the local British Airways office that while flights on 1st of August should be safe, subsequent flights were inadvisable. I do believe that if you've got a plane going through at 12 o'clock tonight, it will probably get through. But if the Iraqis invade, then they will come in the wee small hours. So don't bank on getting a plane through same time tomorrow night. The invasion then started in the early hours of 2nd of August. Thanks to the documents released in November 2021, we know that a call was made by the embassy in Kuwait to London at around 3 a.m. Kuwaiti time, informing the foreign office of the invasion. The information was passed by the resident clerk to the head of the FCO's Middle East Department and also to Number 10, the Ministry of Defence, Cabinet Office and the Secret Intelligence Service, but not to British Airways. So, the British government was now officially aware of the invasion and at this point Flight 149 was still in the air. It didn't land until an hour and a quarter later. Compare that to the statement by Prime Minister Thatcher given in September 1990. The British Airways flight landed, its passengers disembarked, and the crew handed over to the successive crew 
and the crew then went to their hotels. This all took place before the invasion. The invasion was later. Once Flight 149 had landed, the increment team disembarked immediately, met by the uniformed officer. He said, I need to get them off the aircraft quick, in a hurry. They were off within a few moments. The other passengers who were leaving at Kuwait, like George and Deborah Saloom, also then left the aircraft. While the plane was refuelled, some passengers got off to stretch their legs, noticing that the airport seemed strangely quiet. It felt really eerie. It felt like an empty airport, and we were the only ones there that had landed, because you always see some other airline. There were none, and it was like a ghost town. According to the departures board, all flights were cancelled. Flight 149 was the sole arrival. Minutes later, Iraqi jets were overhead. That was when I saw what I recognised as a, as a fighter bomber, and it was dropping bombs in slow motion as it happened. That was a sort of WTF moment, really. And then it clicks in your brain, oh fuck, they're bombing the airport. That much we know already, but there are a few more details to add to this string of events. If we wind back to earlier that week, I can tell you that on the 25th of July, the CIA director briefed President Bush and top officials that they were issuing a formal warning of war. This warning would have been circulated to all Western intelligence agencies. This is a full week before Flight 149 left. Then, on the 1st of August, this was upgraded to a warning of attack, a formal judgment that the outbreak of fighting was imminent. The CIA estimated the chances of war at 99%. Again, this would have been received by all the same agencies. Even if most people thought the Kuwaiti military could hold out for a few days, it seems pretty clear that the region was about to become a war zone. Another important detail came to light when the Foreign Office released the background documents in November 2021. They let slip what seems to be a crucial admission. It's a partially redacted memo from 2007, and it refers, tantalisingly, to information that there were said to be Defence Section staff on board the flight. The Foreign Officers refused to explain this, or what the phrase actually means. But it does further undermine the government narrative, denying there was a mission. And it's worth pointing out that when I first spoke to one of my secret sources all those years ago, he said he was on a DS, Defence Section job, before being sent on the 149 mission, the exact phrase that the Foreign Office memo uses. And there's more, this time from Clive Earthy. This is something he hasn't shared with anyone until now. He promised those involved he wouldn't reveal their identities, and he's kept true to his word. But he has agreed to tell us about it. It took place towards the end of his time as a human shield, although of course at the time Clive didn't know whether he would ever get out alive. At this point, things were about as bad as they could get. He was being held at a Scud missile fuel station in Mosul, northern Iraq. In there, I then met some Brits the Brits were MOD from Kuwait. They also had knowledge of what was going on because when I related our story of Flight 149, 
they said, oh yes, we know about that. <laughs> we knew about that arriving. And we know the person who went to the airport and had to talk flight 149 in to make sure it landed and uh, offloaded all the uh, the men. I said to him, there are four of them there in, with me, <laughs> in all, all nice guys. And I said, how come you, you weren't taken? And he said, well, we knew the Iraqis were due within the next six hours. We could see them and uh, we had time to get IDs printed but it was really upsetting for me because all of a sudden that was the very first time I'd heard somebody saying to me that there were military men on my aeroplane at Heathrow Airport. Although we spoke earlier on, Stephen, about suspicions of these young men, it wasn't confirmed until four months later when I'm now in Mosul on a Scud missile installation to be told, oh yeah, we know that. Yeah, we knew that. So there we are. The rest of it is history, isn't it now, I suppose? There's a couple of key things to unpick here. Firstly, the jaw-dropping moment of Clyde being told by his cellmates that they already knew about the men on Flight 149. What a punch in the guts that must have been. Secondly, this suggests there was a British military presence in the Kuwaiti airport control tower to make sure the plane landed. Astonishing. Some might argue it was a legitimate calculated risk to use Flight 149 to land a surveillance team into Kuwait. In fact, one of the increment team members I interviewed looked back on the mission with pride. He felt sorry that the passengers and crew got caught up in the mess, but he was adamant that the intelligence sent back helped save lives. In one of our interviews, he told me, I feel strongly for the passengers, as they were the innocents of this operation. But then, wasn't the whole of Kuwait the same? I believe history will eventually show that it was an operation that had to be done, and it was executed in the only manner it could have been done, within the timescale and rapidly shifting decisions Saddam was making. Since we started making this podcast, someone else has come forward who was working in Kuwait at the time of the invasion. Her account gives us an insight into what was happening in the British Airways office in the lead up to war. We saw one missile going in through one of the top floor flats um, in one side and then go straight out and clear the whole flat entirely and come out the other end. This is Wiki Ball. Wiki lived in Kuwait during the invasion and occupation and joined the resistance movement, helping to deliver supplies to people in hiding. She got in touch with me a few weeks back after learning of my investigation. I was particularly interested to speak with her since her job was personal assistant to the British Airways country manager. Wiki is a brand new source, someone I'd never spoken with before starting this podcast. On the 1st of August 1990, Wiki Ball was working in her office in downtown Kuwait with her boss, the British Airways country manager, Laurie O'Toole. 
he just sort of left to say that he was going off to a briefing um, with the ambassador. I mean, he had been that on and off for the previous two weeks, sort of various different times. They, they had quite a few meetings. So there wasn't anything unusual in that itself, although most people at the time obviously felt that it was escalating. But I suppose, myself included, I felt, well, you know, the embassy is involved, British Airways is involved, so they'll do and say whatever they can say whenever they can. So I, th I think we were pretty chilled. I also feel quite strongly that we weren't really thinking that they were actually going to invade because we always felt that Kuwait was such a oil-rich country that the Western world wasn't going to let him do it, if you know what I mean. So I think we were probably lulled into a bit of false security there. When O'Toole returned from his meeting at the embassy, he asked Wiki to book his family on the next flight out of Kuwait that night. Something that struck her as odd, since the family had only arrived back in Kuwait two days previously. The situation was just unusual, as in they normally didn't ask me to make the booking. I was very happy to, of course, but it was an unusual situation because they hadn't been long back and because he just came from the briefing with the embassy, where you kind of think, hmm, weird. And just like with hindsight now, do you think that when he returned that day, he had been told of the threat of an invasion? I don't know if he had been told or he made that deduction himself, but something in him, whether told or his own mind, definitely made him want to make sure his wife and children was out of there. I can't speak to what might have been said at the embassy because he didn't share that with me. And as we know, the invasion did start that night. When I woke up the next morning, I woke up earlier than usual because there was really, really loud bang and explosions going on. And I just remember just before I was fully with it, it's like, what? It doesn't normally thunder this time of year at all. This is really weird. And then the next thought was there. Oh, so they did. The Iraqis are here. Wiki called her friend Lisa and they tried to make it to the border. So we jumped in the car and we kept on being stopped in roadblocks and we really knew that we were never going to make it all the way down there. So we then sort of pulled over to the side. What do we do now? We didn't fancy driving into Kuwait because you could see smoke and you could hear gunfire and everything else going on. And um, the two towers next to where Lisa lived had been hit. We saw one missile going in through one of the top floor flats in one side and then go straight out and clear the whole flat entirely and come out the other end. So we were never going to go anywhere near places like that. It just didn't make sense. They managed to make it to a friend's apartment, looking for safety in numbers. After a few days, Wiki suggested starting a phone chain to stay in contact with others across the city. One of these contacts was a New Zealander named Alistair. And after a while, Alistair was like, well, you know, this is what we'd like to do. We want to set up and do various things with people that are in hiding. And I obviously wanted to join that because it felt very much like it was flipping Saddam Hussein the bird because we were keeping people in hiding so he couldn't take them. They started sneaking across the city in disguise, delivering food to a network of around 175 safe houses. Unbelievably dangerous work. One of these houses was where her boss, Laurie O'Toole, was hiding out. Laurie was incredibly paranoid and, and I suppose disrespect, quite understandably so, so we weren't allowed to open the curtains, even with net curtains on, because people could see that there was people in there. This was fine and this was quite right that he shouldn't do that but also he wouldn't want to sit and talk to us. So when we came and delivered food and, you know, news and jokes and tried to keep up their spirits, he would very often retreat to another room and he was just behaving very, very peculiar. Do you remember at any stage encountering any of the crew from 149? I am sure that I would have met them without any doubt at all because we were casting the net really, really wide for people that we were keeping in safe houses. It was a lot of houses and it was a lot of people. 
Perhaps the captain, Richard Bunyate? Um, I can't remember. I thought there was another guy from the crew. I, I can't remember. Wiki continued her daring missions for nearly four months. Who knows how many people she and her colleagues saved with their incredibly brave resistance work. And it's an example of the power of this podcast that more sources are still coming forward all these years later, helping to build a fuller picture of what it was like living in Kuwait during the Iraqi occupation. More after this short break. I'm Elise Hugh. And I'm Josh Klein. And we're the hosts of Built for Change, a podcast from Accenture. On Built for Change, we're talking to business leaders from every corner of the world that are harnessing change to reinvent the future of their business. We're discussing ideas like the importance of ethical AI or how productivity soars when companies truly listen to what their employees value. These are insights that leaders need to know to stay ahead. So subscribe to Built for Change wherever you get your podcasts. This is the secret history of Flight 149. During Operation Desert Storm, Flight 149 was blown up. Official accounts said this was by Iraqi forces fleeing Kuwait. To some, it seemed strange that the Iraqis would destroy a valuable possession, like a fully equipped jumbo jet, when they could have easily flown it to Baghdad. Well, I was told by two sources, one who was monitoring events inside Kuwait during the invasion, the second a US military source, that the official accounts were not correct. They said the plane was in fact blown up by the US Air Force at the request of the British government. It's worth pointing out that BA got a huge insurance payout for the loss of their aircraft, seven million pounds in 1990 money. This while opposing British passengers' legal cases seeking compensation, one of which was eventually dismissed by the House of Lords. In France, BA lost in the courts. In the US, they settled out of court. But the call for compensation hasn't gone away. Since the release of the Foreign Office papers, some of the human shields have begun speaking with lawyers again. The documents are being re-examined to see if there are grounds for new claims. But no amount of financial compensation can give the human shields back what they've lost. The whole experience has left me with three decades of mental health issues. It's left me with PTSD, a struggle with anxiety and depression. This is Jennifer Chappell. She was 12 when she boarded Flight 149. We heard in an earlier episode how she and her brother witnessed killings and at one point thought they were about to be shot and dumped in a tin shack. The hostage ordeal has been the defining event of her life. I find it very hard to believe that what people say is actually what they intend. I have barriers up, I won't let people in. I I find it very difficult to accept any kind of help or really open up to my, and show any true thoughts or feelings to to people. I've had suicide attempts. It's still ongoing now. And the anger is, is still there, particularly the anger over, well, over all the lies essentially. I'm not an idiot. We understand that governments have to make tough decisions, but at least then have the decency to say that that is what we did. This is why we did it. We're sorry that it caused so much harm to you. 
I was a bright, happy child. I did well academically. There's no reason at all I shouldn't have gone on to have a successful career and to a university the lot. You know, that would have been my life plan. But no, I'm completely derailed by Q8, completely. Jenny Gill, who escaped with her brother and sister using fake Malaysian documents, still hasn't been able to listen to this podcast. It's just too painful. I really feel for those lives that have already gone, those people that are no longer with us. Who knows what sort of lives they would have had if this had not happened to them. And actually, I think it's been so long that people have been trying to forget this experience. They just don't want to talk about it anymore, Stephen. That's the point they've got to. And I completely respect that because I know it brings back too many traumas. What I want to know is, What support are they going to give those people that are still here, standing here, that want a level of justice? But they just, all they want to do is live their lives. They want to live better lives. And they can't do that with all that experience that they've gone through. Because for 28 years, 30 years, 31 years, everybody has been suffering and nobody's been there to pick up the pieces. Nobody. Clive Earthy took a few months off after his ordeal, but he was soon flying again until he found himself in another terrifying situation. I had a roster to operate to uh, Seoul in Korea. And at that time, North Korea was massing on the border of South Korea. And I nearly had a, a wobbler, if you know what I mean. I couldn't sleep the leading up to the flight because it was the same scenario, really, that I'd already faced with Flight 149 and the Iraqis on the border threatening. And all of a sudden, here we are, the North Koreans doing exactly the same thing with South Korea. So I I ended up having, uh, after nearly having a breakdown, worrying myself sick, I had to refuse that flight. A couple of years later, four years after he got home from Kuwait, Clive decided to retire. Ever since then, I've been trying, as you know yourself, Stephen, I've been trying uh, everything I can to get attention on Flight 149. The effect on Jackie is uh, that, really, on the children as well, that she's always been behind me, she's always supported me. But whenever I have been carried away, she likes to say, you get carried away talking about Flight 149 and about governments, Clive. I can understand that. The the various films that I've been associated with, they put a certain amount of stress on her as well, I suppose. I think she'd be quite happy if I said, that's it, I think, you know, I'm I'm dropping Flight 149 now, I've put it to rest or I've put it to bed or whatever the saying is. Although me, it hasn't ever actually gone away for me. Here's flight attendant Helen Peters. I I felt very, very betrayed, very angry. I mean, initially I used to have reoccurring nightmares of um, being caught in another war and saying, oh my God, I can't believe I'm I'm in another war. This is unbelievable. And it was a nightmare I had for years. Um, I then felt very, very unsafe. We started having terrorism attacks in England and I just felt very scared and it was all triggered by being 
a hostage in Kuwait. I didn't trust the government. I didn't trust, you know, anybody really. I just felt very scared for my kids at that time. And we decided to come to New Zealand and we were very lucky and managed to, to immigrate here about 16 years ago. And as soon as I landed here, as soon as we, we, we found a home, I just felt this big weight lift off my shoulder. I just felt happy and safe. I asked Gregor Schatz, who was just 17 at the time, how he felt the experience had affected him. Yeah, it, it's a really hard one to answer because I've, I've asked myself the question many times over the years, or many other people have asked me that question as well. I, it's definitely been a catalyst. I can say it, it was a catalyst in the sense of like, it, I guess it made me grow up on quicker. Coming out again, you see like how fragile it all is. And uh, it made me more grateful, I believe, for my life and the freedoms I enjoy. But it's been a somewhat at the cost of my ability to plan too far ahead. I, I, just, I just don't believe in too far ahead. You know, we live in a society where you're meant to set goals and retroactively we sort of piece together the story. Well, I did this and then I did this and then I studied that so I could get that job and then I did... And I've been a little bit more sort of drifting, I guess, and I, I'm, one of the decisions I made after I finished studying philosophy was that I did not want to climb a career ladder. I wanted to experience all manner of different jobs to be able to get many different perspectives on life. B. George and Deborah Saloom told me how they felt about things all these years later. It's kind of a double-edged sword, okay? I feel betrayed in reference to the fact that we were used uh, to be able to uh, have uh, individuals on the airplane to land in Kuwait the day of the invasion or the morning of the invasion, and that we were basically uh, used as pawns and put ourselves at risk. The other component of this is that through trials and tribulations, uh, we grow and become better. Not that it's just like going to boot camp is something I don't want to ever do again, but I've learned things, I've become more appreciative of things, and I'm a better person because of that, not because of the, the government allowed me to be there, but because of the experiences and the, my attitude and my ability to overcome the difficulties uh, in life. I have to say that probably my faith was strengthened. I felt that it was a miracle that Preston and I had had that we were able to leave. I felt enormous gratitude to God that B. George had survived and uh, made it through this ordeal. Gratitude for all the freedoms that we have here in this land. Although I, I don't think it was right to put civilians in this kind of a situation, especially not uh, the younger children that were there uh, on that flight that were taken hostage. I would really appreciate their acknowledging what they did. Do I look for them to do that? No. I spoke with Margaret Hearn a few days after the London press conference, and I asked her how she felt after hearing Tony Pace's account. I'm really angry. Initially, I thought, oh, it probably just was a big, stupid, terrible timing, you know, whatever. Uh, and I thought that for quite a long time. But gradually, as little bits think come through and you hear a bit more, you start to think, you know, no, there probably was something to the stories. And I now do believe there was. I think the thought 
they'd be lucky and get away with it. I really do. I think they thought, mm, we'll just manage to do it, get out quickly. But what a risk to take. What an amazing risk to take with all those people. And they were, in a sense, they were lucky that we didn't die. I wasn't in control of my life and things were going wrong, left, right and centre. It was, it was it had fallen apart. Barry Manners hit rock bottom after his partner, Anthony, died, just 15 months after returning from Kuwait. I was living on friend's sofas. I had no money. But Barry found the strength to keep going. He set up a successful business with a friend, and he then made an extraordinary decision. I needed to be in control, I suppose, and I realised that there was this episode in my life where I wasn't in control. So I, I decided to go back and confront it and do it completely on my own terms. He booked himself a flight back to Iraq. And so I took a bicycle and flew to Erbil in northern Iraq with a, just a one change of clothes and a toothbrush and a razor. And um, yeah, didn't have any plan beyond that. I didn't have a hotel reservation, didn't have anything. Just thought I'm gonna go there, see what happens. He headed up towards the lake where he'd been held as a hostage. I ended up bumping into the Iraqi triathlon team, as you do, and they invited me to stay with them. And there was this sort of odd moment of synchronicity, and it turns out that their team dormitory had inherited our beds. <laughs> so I ended up sleeping in my own, my old hostage bed, or the bed frame at least, in the team dormitory for the Iraqi triathlon team. And two of their athletes cycled with me over to the lake, and um, they basically lifeguarded me so I could jump in and Yes, there was this almost sort of quasi-religious experience of baptism to just dive into that lake because I was still there and Saddam Hussein and my guards and everyone else I'd come to despise in, in during the whole experience probably weren't. Okay, Barry, thank you very much. Really, that was amazing, genuinely. Uh, I've, I've interviewed thousands of people in my life and seldom have I found somebody as brilliant at expressing things as you. Thank you. So I really appreciate that. And um, Do you know what, Stephen? I, I, it, it is a subconscious thing. I couldn't sit down. I, I'm, my conscious state is, as far as I'm aware, on completely normal and level. But I couldn't, when we had lunch, we sat down, I couldn't eat a thing. I couldn't swallow it. It, it was coming, I swallowed it, and, it, and I, I couldn't swallow it down. I had to go and, I had a, a load of bile and stuff coming up. And I've just sat here and I've just started bleeding. It, I'm not joking. Look, I've just, I've just, okay. I've just, uh, right. I, and it isn't that weird. Well, you need to go to a doctor, mate. Okay. But, uh, yeah, no, it's just, I've just, it's okay. just, I think it's just stress, isn't it? It's like, yes. uh, it's really it's weird. Stress. Yeah. Most of those I've interviewed over the years hold Saddam Hussein principally responsible for their ordeal. But they also believe Flight 149 should never have landed in Kuwait in the first place. And who could have authorised the last-minute secret mission to get the increment team on the flight? Well, according to my sources, this could only have been ordered by Margaret Thatcher, and it would have needed approval from the then-chairman of British Airways, Lord King. Yes, 
The Foreign Secretary's apology in November 2021, a full 31 years after the event, is significant. And the supporting documents did reveal crucial new information that backed up Tony Pace's account that he did not say it was safe to fly that night. But the long-awaited Operation Sandcastle report and the complete lack of press coverage was a huge disappointment. Saddam is now long dead. He never faced trial for the invasion of Kuwait or the taking of hostages and their use as human shields. Iraq and Kuwait moved on. There have been other wars and other victims. The momentous decision to send American troops to Saudi Arabia had disastrous consequences. A certain Osama bin Laden vowed revenge that the US should be allowed to set up a military base on holy soil. He proved to be a man of his word. Richard Clark, former head of counterterrorism for the US, has said, the rise of Al-Qaeda in the 1990s, the US invasion of Afghanistan, the second US war with Iraq, the rise of ISIS, all followed that August 1990 decision to deploy large US forces to the Gulf. We could do a whole other podcast about the political ramifications of this, but our story focuses on the human shields themselves. They had no idea when they boarded Flight 149 that day that their lives would be changed forever. The first one I wrote was the Sands of 1990. It was the first one I wrote about Kuwait. That's Jennifer Chapel talking about a poem she wrote about her hostage experience. She's turned to poetry at various moments of crisis throughout her life. But it's only very recently that she's been able to write about her time in Kuwait. I can't think of a more poignant way to end our series than to share this poem with you. With thanks to Jennifer for reading it for us. On desert sands, all innocence is lost. On desert sands, true fear is born. Cold sweat runs in the searing heat, cold comfort on the edge of my seat. Frightened whispers and soft crying accompany platitudes of protective lying. On desert sands, where my memory burnt. In desert heat, bright childhood dies. In desert heat, first paranoia fires. A world now and always askew, a world of promise slipped from view. Barriers go up forever to remain. Keep closed all emotion, avoid the pain. In desert heat, while my memory choked. By desert night, trust and security slumbers. By desert night, thought process tangles. A flight away, all hope is tortured. A flight away, the heart is fractured. Left behind a piece of core identity, abandoned alongside a fragment of sanity. By desert night, still my memory blazes. The Secret History of Flight 149 is a Crowd Network original. It's presented by me, Stephen Davis. It's produced by Samantha Syke. The executive producer is Steve Jones. Sound design on this episode is by Crawford Blair and across the series by Rory Ouskoui and Phil Brown. The music we use is from our partners, BMG Production Music. To get episodes without adverts, 
subscribe to the Crowd Stories channel on the Apple Podcasts app. If you want to learn more about Flight 149 and Operation Trojan Horse, my new book, The Secret History of Flight 149, will be available in print, ebook, and audiobook. In the US and Canada, the book's called simply Flight 149. Additional material across the series is courtesy of Getty, Blakeway Productions, the Parliamentary Recording Unit, and C-SPAN. With thanks to Luis Rodriguez at Sonic Space Lab in Dunedin, and to Soho Radio Studios in London. Thanks also to Paul Gallantry, Tom Wilde, and Jill Mills for their readings. The biggest thanks must of course go to the human shields themselves for so bravely sharing their stories with us. Stay tuned for another Secret History series where I'll be exposing the story behind the sinking of the Estonia, which cost 852 people their lives. What follows is a twisting story of spies, submarines and smugglers. And if you want another podcast to listen to right now, try American Vigilante. It's about the controversial renegade crime fighter KC, a man who could save your life, but end it too. Search for American Vigilante wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Crowd Network, a place where you belong.